Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Say, we'd like to get started. I talk to you and you talk to me. Who are you talking to at this hour? Mr. Bradley. You better start talking. Let's start the talking. I could talk all night. My mind is J-talking. Bradley J. J talking WBZ. WBZ, you're Jay talking live midnight to five. I work overnight, I get home, gotta try to get to sleep. One thing I like to do to get to sleep is watch sort of documentaries. There's a series called Empires. So I watched uh, the multi part series on Rome. There's another one on Israel. And there's another one on Martin Luther. I'd heard about Martin Luther all my life. Probably should have known more about him, but after watching this, documentary maybe six times because I came to like it and I would put it on each time I, I wanted to get to sleep and I'd, I'd go to sleep listening to it and wake up at different times so I, I got the whole thing in dribs and drabs I became astounded by the bravery the contribution the challenges overcome by Martin Luther so I determined that uh, this is something I want to share with you and help you understand, because as I came to understand it, the, the guy is, is a hero among heroes, Martin Luther. And to help us, we have Christopher Boyd Brown, Associate Professor of Church History at Boston U, Boston University School of Theology. Thank you so much. So let's start out by understanding the world that Martin Luther came into, late 1400s, plague, the church was already starting to offer indulgences, what you'll explain what that is. Uh, it was a grim, grim world. The only sort of hope you had, the thing you kind of clung to is maybe you could get to heaven. But the church stood in the way of that, and uh, that's, that's the world that, that's a, an overview of the world Martin Luther came into. Maybe you can flesh that out a little bit. Sure. Well, late medieval Europe, there were kingdoms, there was the Holy Roman Empire, what we would call Germany, which is where Luther lived. But the world of Western Europe was dominated in a way that's hard for us to understand by the church. The church had its own laws right, that regulated people's lives in matters like marriage, um, as well as how they could be saved. And the personnel of the church, the, the priests, the clergy, they were under the laws of the church and not under the laws of the kings. That's still a, a topical issue. What, what right does civil law have over the, uh, the members of the church? Um, so the church had tremendous power, both spiritually over people's hopes of salvation and politically. Right? The, 
medieval popes claimed the power to be able to depose kings and emperors if they wanted to. And so religious questions were also political ones. People lived in the shadow of the Black Death, the plague which had swept Europe in 1347 and then periodically thereafter. Uh, as much as a third of the population of Europe was wiped out. So uh, that has to be on your mind. Yeah, you know, so people were concerned with death. Right? The images and the art uh, showed the dance of death, skeletons dancing, death approaching people in the prime of life. Uh, because you never knew when death was going to arrive, through the plague or through violence. Uh, and you wanted to be ready. Who were the, a couple of the artists of the time or maybe the famous, famous paintings of the time? Well, in the late Middle Ages, you're also moving into the, the Renaissance. Okay. So that there's a, a point of transition from uh, sort of the traditional art of the Middle Ages to uh, new figures. So da Vinci, uh, Michelangelo, um, in Luther's context in Germany, Albrecht Dürer was the, the great artist. And in Wittenberg, Lucas Cronach, a great painter, was Luther's friend and collaborator. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see some of those Cronach paintings. And his family life, uh, his personal life, was was tough as well, right? Well, Luther was born into uh, basically a peasant family. His father was a miner, a copper miner, who'd started out swinging a pickaxe in the mines himself. Uh, by the time Luther was a boy, his father had become successful enough to be a, a manager and a part owner of the mines. Uh, and so he had hopes for his son to advance the family socially. He so, wanted him to be a lawyer, correct? Yeah, you know, so they invested in Luther's education. Mm -hmm. He was sent off. Um, if you wanted to be educated, you had to learn Latin. Right? Everyone spoke Latin in the schools. And in fact, there were rules that if a, a boy, you know, seven or eight years old, spoke anything but Latin, he would receive a beating. <laughs> um, the, the dunce's cap uh, was an invention of that period. If you spoke in, in German rather than Latin, you had to go sit in the corner uh, after receiving your beating. Uh, that was sort of typical of Luther's upbringing. Um, his parents were strict with him. Uh, he was sent to schools where he was expected to, to learn in order to advance the family. His parents uh, beat him. I don't know if that was what every parent did at the time, but he's uh, in the special they talked about Luther having written that one time his mother beat him till he bled because he stole a nut. Yeah, the, that was probably pretty typical of uh, child racing at the time. Uh, so right away, and I think it's important, is it, it was this idea of extreme punishment and an inability to please really was part of his life. That's my theory that that is part of his whole life and maybe a motivator down the road. It was part of his family life. Um, it was also very much part of his religious life. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, that's something he shared with other Christians of the late Middle Ages, this uncertainty about um, how to be sure that you were pleasing to God. Okay. And so walk me, you know, step by step, baby steps in quite, quite a lot of detail. What happened next? His father sent him off to school to be a lawyer. He almost became a lawyer, but some things happened. Right. So Luther was in law school. His uh, father had invested to buy the very expensive books that he needed in order to study law. Um, 
Luther had gone home for one of the, the breaks and was returning to the University of Erfurt uh, across the open countryside when there was a thunderstorm. And lightning apparently was striking nearby, and so Luther was afraid, of his, afraid for his life and just in terror. Um, death was right there, and so he did what uh, a devout Christian in the late Middle Ages would do. He fell to his knees, and he swore a vow. Uh, he swore St. Anne, um, according to tradition, the mother of the Virgin Mary, uh, St. Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. And obviously Luther survived the thunderstorm. Um, he took that as a sign that he ought to become a monk, to enter religious life in an intensive way. As I understand, he was almost completed law school, and he, his father was not pleased that he decided to become a monk. For his father, it was upsetting all the plans that the family had had for him. It would have been useful um, for the mining industry to have a lawyer in the family. Uh, to have a priest was religiously helpful, but practically not so much. Um, but Luther was very serious about it. He picked out one of the strictest and most observant religious orders in his context, the observant Augustinian hermits. We've covered the very early life of Martin Luther, the times he grew up in, family life, his brush with death, and his, and the resulting promise to become a monk. He becomes a monk, and he joined the most ultra, ultra-Orthodox group he could. And that was, what was the name of that again? The Observant Augustinian Hermits. <clears throat> Why Augustinian? Well, they trace their origins back to St. Augustine okay. of Hippo, the 4th, 5th century church father. Okay. Um, looked back to his writings and to his example. Okay, and uh, the, give me some ideas of life there and how strict it was. Well, the basic rhythm of monastic life was constant prayer. Right? So the monastic community would join together seven times during the day and then once in the middle of the night right about now. Um, they were mendicants, which meant they were expected to support themselves by begging. They didn't have property that they lived off of, um, so Luther would have gone out begging for daily bread to support himself. Um, there were routines of self-discipline, right? Um, You're supposed to you sometimes beat yourself with branches, that type of thing? Self, is that self-flagellation? Um, possibly. Um, yeah. For Luther, especially things like um, sort of throwing himself prostrate on the stone floor and uh, remaining there as a... For a day. As a kind of penance, right? Because it, the key part, uh, the really the center for Luther, was that this was a place where you could confess your sins and the idea was you could do something about them. You were better able to deal with your sins as a monk mm -hmm. than if you were living out in the world. And I, in the special, it talked about, maybe this is made up, but how he, in a similar, as a similar sort of gesture, went out in the snow and slept without blankets until his brothers dragged him in half dead. And this was all about trying to get into heaven. This is where my theory about his abusive parents comes into play. Although probably everybody had, a lot of folks had parents just like that. Couldn't please his father in his real life home, and now he can't please his Lord and Father. Same thing. And he, no matter what he does, he doesn't feel like it's enough. And he's scared to death he's going to go to hell. That this is, this is the thing, right? This is the motivator. That's right. He was 
filled with fear. I mean, he found a sort of new father figure in the monastery, Johann von Staupitz, who was his superior, the head of the Augustinian hermits in, in Germany. Um, and Staupitz played a key role in encouraging Luther. And when Luther was worried about his sins, uh, Staupitz would tell him, stop worrying about little sins. Right. Um, was Staupitz in Wittenberg? Um, well, Staupitz was the head of the whole German army. Oh, Augustine. he was. So um, Staupitz was especially connected with Wittenberg, okay. but he would had jurisdiction over the monastery in Erfurt where Luther had entered. Right, And it was Staupitz who uh, knew that Luther had had this academic career, um, had started studying law, and decided to send Luther back to the university, um, this time to study theology rather than law. Okay. At, you know, next step, and we, we do have a long way to go. <laughs> I'd probably better pick up the pace here uh, chronologically. So if you were telling the story on your own, what would you go to next? Well, it was on Staupitz's behalf that Luther was sent as an agent of the order to file an appeal with the papal court in Rome right? uh, in 1511. So Luther gets sent outside of Germany for the first and only time in his life, uh, travels across the Alps to Rome. Uh, he takes care of the business for his order, um, but he sees the city of Rome for the first time. Now, it's not clear whether the Pope would have been there at that time. Pope Julius was usually off uh, leading the papal armies, fighting battles. Mm -hmm. um, but Luther fully immersed himself in the devotion that was only possible in Rome. He went up the Scala Sancta, uh, the Holy Stairs on his knees to try to win indulgences as time off of purgatory for his grandparents. Are those steps still there? Is uh, a lot of the stuff still there? Wow. Um, now, of course, the thing that's different now is the main church in Rome, St. Peter's. Mm -hmm. um, the old St. Peter's, which had been given to the Christian church by the Emperor Constantine back in the 4th century, uh, had gotten old and run down. And so the Renaissance popes decided to, to tear the old thing down and replace it with something classy. Um, so when Luther was there, uh, it was in process of being torn down and, and rebuilt. Uh, and this, we're now into the um, Renaissance, because as I understand it. As he was there, they're painting the Sistine Chapel roof. And, the, and Raphael room is, rooms are, are starting to fill up with Raphael paintings. Michelangelo, a little bit uh, later on, is responsible for the a lot of the design of St. Peter's as it gets built. Um, Michelangelo actually becomes one of the sort of secret readers, at least, of, of Luther's writings. Really? Uh, uh, not yet at this point. Uh -huh. That's interesting. But um, the new St. Peter's is, is crucial in the story of Luther because it costs a lot of money uh, to build a church like that. And... The way that the papacy raises the money for it is by issuing new indulgences. Um, that is, these grants by papal authority that give people a reduction of the time they have to spend suffering in purgatory in order to finish getting rid of their sins before they can enter into heaven. So backing up a little bit, well, actually continuing, he's still at Rome. My, my understanding is that he did all the pilgrimage sites and with each one was increasingly more disenchanted. Uh, it, it looked like this, you know, the religion that he was suffering for back at the monastery 
looked nothing like what we, he sees in Rome, and he was extremely disillusioned. It was all about the money. It was all about power, and they even made they even you know managed to get money from the pilgrims by offering this, as you mentioned, uh, you could I can't remember what it was. Maybe was there a hall of martyrs you, you would allow to to pay some money and go into, and as a bonus, you could get an indulgence. And he was disgusted by all this. Yeah, there, there were indulgences attached to to all of the the churches in Rome and to going to all of them in in series. There were relics of the mm-hmm. the martyrs there. The the heads of Saint P, uh, Paul and Peter were supposed to be in the the Lateran Basilica. Um, and at that time, Luther was very much invested in all of that. But what he found particularly offensive was the idea that people in Rome, the clergy in Rome, didn't take it as seriously as Luther did back in his monastery. Luther would go to say Mass uh, at the Lateran, and the Italian priest would tell him, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Yeah, just get on with Uh it. And there's a line when he was trying to uh, break the bread and the wine where some priest said something like, it's bread and it will always be bread. That's right. There's this idea that in what was supposed to be the center of Christianity at, Mm -hmm. at Rome... Right, that the papal clergy didn't take Christianity seriously. And for Luther, that was, that was troubling. So and this was Luther's only trip out of Germany. He goes back and starts his teaching duties um, now at the University of, of Wittenberg for Staupitz. Um, but certainly the recollection of this trip to Rome and what he had seen there are an underlying part of how he responds to the church for the rest of his life. And he gets back to the monastery, and it is never the same. I don't have time to really get into the next step of the story, but let me ask you for 60 seconds about what purgatory meant then. And we we sort of know what it is now, but it was the exact same thing, both in quantity and quality. you, You had to have the sins burned out of you for maybe a thousand years, and these indulgences could you could avoid that with, a, 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 you know, the cost of an indulgence. What was purgatory then? So, if you died in mortal sin, you were going to hell. But if you died with um, sins that were not so serious, but still sins, then you had to go to purgatory before you could enter into heaven. And purgatory was a place I was described a lot like hell, with with burning, a suffering, a pur- purgation. Um, it was measured in terms of time, right? Uh, like not a thousand age, years? But, could you but be thousands and thousands of years, <laughs> right? Um, people who, use wouldn't their, pay, who wouldn't pay for an indulgence to avoid a thousand years of burning? You know, people use their accounting skills to tally up how many years of purgatory you might have. Um, but an indulgence was a grant by papal power that deducted from the time that you wow. had to spend in purgatory. How much would an indulgence cost? Did they have a sliding scale? There was a sliding scale. So if you were a peasant, uh, you paid a little bit. If you were a nobleman, you paid a lot. Would it be um, like a a real chunk out of your yearly income or maybe a month's pay? Any any sense of what that costs a person? I'm kind of trying to... F- it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Figure out how much the church would stick it to you. Um, it would be the equivalent of at least a, a couple weeks of income. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, you could acquire multiple indulgences. You could yes. acquire them f- not only for yourself, but for your deceased relatives. Uh, that was encouraged. Did they give you a deal for a six-pack? <laughs> I'm not sure there was a, a quantity discount. There, there was a sliding <laughs> scale. Um, but yes, part of this uncertainty about salvation meant that if you wanted to be more sure then you would go back and buy a new double layer triple layer of uh, safety net that's right so when these new indulgences for the construction of saint peter's were being preached um, they were a hot commodity and uh, the pope commissioned one of the top preachers johann tetzel uh, to go out and and preach about them Um, they weren't being preached right in luther's backyard in part because Luther's prince, Frederick the Wise, had his own collection of relics that he wanted to display, and pilgrims would come and pay money to to see those. But um, Germany was a real patchwork of little states, so you could walk half a day from Wittenberg and be in the next uh, county over, and you could buy an indulgence from Tetzel there. And that's how Luther came into contact with this sale of indulgences going on in 1517. Interesting. So Tetzel was particularly suited to this because he was really the marketer of the day, as I understand it. And he even had little slogans like the ring of the coin goes in and your soul goes on the wing. So he had these little jingles and everything. That's right. He was a sort of a precursor, sort of a madman of uh, indulgences for the 16th century. Right. And uh, as I think about it, it's like a company issuing a bond, kind of, isn't it? They uh, needed to raise money. So they issued something for sale, and in this case, it was the indulgences. They are kind of operated like a business, but they had this little thing going for them that other businesses didn't, and they were the gateway to heaven. Okay, so Martin Luther's gone back to his monastery, and for it's about, he's there for seven years. How long is he there before he gets word of these indulgences? Like seven years after he was in Rome, something like that? That's right. It would have been about uh, six years after his, his trip to Rome. Again, this was a, a new issuance of indulgences, like a, a new bond, as you say. Um, but it becomes deeply distressing to Luther. He's a professor of theology, and so he responds the way a professor of theology does. Um, he writes up a set of theses, propositions for academic right. debate, which is a, a very standard part of what people did in medieval universities. And he posts them on the university bulletin board, which happened to be the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. It would be just like the somebody doing that. It'd be you uh, banging a nail into some theses and up on the door of the chapel there on Comav. Well, not quite as dramatic as that because it, it was the usual place where you posted things. Okay. Uh, it's not quite like driving a nail into the freshly painted door of the, the local church today. Okay. Uh, but... This was an ordinary thing for Luther to do, but it quickly became explosive, right? Um, in part because of the printing press. Right? Johann Gutenberg in the 1450s had developed this new technology. 
um, printed his famous Bible, um, but actually the thing that made Gutenberg money was printing forms for indulgences. Mm-hmm. Right? That shows how I didn't know that. important That's good. it was. The, the Bible really? actually made him almost bankrupt. Um, it was the indulgences that you could make money on uh, printing. Um, Luther's 95 Theses get printed. Uh, they get printed in Wittenberg, and then they get printed in other towns in Germany, and within a few months, they've spread across Europe. Right? They become very controversial in ways that Luther had not really intended, in part because they impact this whole economic structure and how the church makes money or how people feel that they're being exploited by the church trying to make money. Um, But they also call into question some fundamental religious presuppositions. Um, Luther did not intend to directly challenge the papacy with the 95 Theses, but because indulgences are bound up with the power of the pope, um, that's how they were received in Rome. And so when the official papal theologian writes back, that's what he picks up on, is that if Dr. Martin Luther, this monk in Germany, is saying this, what he's really doing is saying that the pope doesn't have spiritual authority over sins. So Luther is denounced as a heretic. Which is punishable by death at at the time. That's right. All right. And is this where we talk about Hus, is it, from 100 years prior, who was uh, in a similar situation, and he expected safe passage and did not work out for him. That's right. So Jan Hus was a Czech theologian at the University of Prague a century before Luther. Um, He had criticized uh, some of the financial entanglements of the church in a much more direct way. Um, He had been hauled before a council, the Council of Constance, and despite having a safe conduct, uh, he had been condemned and then burned at the stake. Right? Um, what people remembered is that he's supposed to have said, uh, today they're burning a goose, hus in Czech means goose, mm-hmm. but a hundred years from now there will come a swan that they won't be able to burn. Really? And uh, in retrospect, at least, people took that as being a kind of prophecy of Luther. Um, so the church finds out about it? And now we have about, I would say, 18, 17, 18 minutes to decide how to pace ourselves to get to the end. So the, the church finds out about it, and they send for Martin Luther? So they want to haul Luther off to Rome to be judged and imprisoned at best, um, put to death at worst. Uh, but Luther has some allies. His prince, Frederick the Wise, who is the patron of the university where he's teaching, is one of the most powerful princes in Germany, and he decides to protect Luther. Any idea why? Um, It seems mostly to have been out of interest in the prestige of his own university. Okay. Eventually, he comes to appreciate Luther's religious ideas, but really only at the end of his life, in 1525, does Frederick um, start acting like a religious follower of Luther. So to put it in the parlance of our times, he, he realized he had a rock star on his hands and he, he was benefiting from that association. Something like that. Okay. I mean, Luther had sort of come out of nowhere and become this very public uh, figure, a sort of star of the university. He was attracting students and Frederick decided to protect him. Okay. So rather than being hauled off to Rome, Luther does get excommunicated by the Pope, um, but he's put on trial in Germany, 
uh, at the Diet of Worms, the Imperial Assembly in 1521. And there Luther is sort of hauled before all of the, the princes, <coughs> including the bishops of the Holy Roman Empire. All of the books that Luther has published to this point are put on a table, and he's asked whether he's willing to retract them. All right. Before the break, I want to ask you about the excommunication. Now, knowing how de extremely devout Luther was, an excommunication, at least before this, would have been devastating. But after he had his epiph epiphanies about the fact that your relationship should be directly with God, did this excommunication affect him less because he had kind of established this direct communication, or was he just completely devastated? By the time that the excommunication actually came, uh, Luther seems to have been ready for it, right? Um, he recognized that if the Pope didn't have power to grant indulgences for sins and the Pope's excommunication didn't count uh, for God's rejection either, right? So in fact, when Luther gets the uh, bull of excommunication, um, he and some students go outside of the Wittenberg Gate and they burn the papal bull in public along with the books of church law as a sort of public statement that this document, this condemnation, doesn't have this kind of crushing effect for them. So he's really evolved a great deal into this outspoken, brave person from, from the person he was before. So for, for Luther, at the center of that was his reading of the Bible. Right, this uh, new encounter with the text of the scriptures and the developing belief that um, it was really only faith in God, right? not trying to do works, not trying to uh, mortify the flesh as a monk to sort of save yourself and make God happy with you, uh, but only faith in what God had promised. And if God promised to forgive your sins, then that was much more reliable than anything that you could do or anything that the right. Pope could say. And for Luther, that became the bedrock of his confidence. So he rejected the idea you had to earn your way into heaven and that heaven was there. All you had to do was put your hands out and receive it. That's right. That God, If God promises it, then all you have to do, all you can do, is to put your faith in God's promise. So Luther is summoned to appear before the emperor, uh, before all the princes, both secular princes and the, the archbishops of the empire. And in the presence of those august personages, asked to recant, told that he can save himself by recanting. So it's all you have to do not to be killed is just say the word, hey, I was kidding about those books. That's right. All he has to say is revoco. I revoke, I recant. Um, I no longer want to defend what I've said and written. Um, Luther asked for a day to think about it. It was a huge decision to make. Uh, he came back the following day and said that unless they could show him from clear reason or from the scriptures that he was wrong, that it would be against his conscience to recant and then his famous words, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. And as far as Luther knew, when he said those words, he was signing his own death warrant, because that's what the empire did with heretics, they were sentenced to death.
Is there any record of what his thought processes processes were during that day? <clears throat> Did he consider anything else? Did he write down anything of his his thoughts that day? So we know that Luther had offered several times to previously to be quiet, to, to stop publishing if his opponents would do likewise. In other words, just to put a moratorium on the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, he had made that offer and it had been refused. Um, now it was really down to the wire. And for Luther, again, it came down to his conscience. Right? Uh, as he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. So based on his confidence in the Bible, the and in his understanding it, of how things worked. That's right. And it was it was more important for him to be faithful to his conscience, to his understanding of the Bible, than to save his own skin. And I think for Luther, I mean, that's the real measure of his courage uh, on that day in, in Worms in 1521. Um, he could have saved himself, right? For all he knew, he was going to be burned at the stake the way Hus had 100 years before. Um, and... So the next day came, they said, we're ready for you, Martin Luther, come with us. And so he met with these people and they said what? So the sentence was passed that Luther was condemned and for the rest of his life, he was an outlaw, right? The term was free as a bird. Um, that sounds nice, but what it meant was that anyone who met Luther from that point on could kill him and suffer no more penalty than if they'd killed a bird. Oh, right. that's where that saying comes from? Oh, no, that's originally, really? yeah, Vogelfrei in German. But, of course, Luther still had his prince on his side, and he had this safe conduct. And unlike Hus, Luther was able to leave Worms, right, officially condemned but not put to death yet. Right, and, and he was going back to? He was going to go back to Wittenberg. Okay. But on the road, a few days out, uh, the elector sent his troops in disguise, disguised as highway robbers, and kidnapped Luther and took him into secret protective custody. Right? Squirreled him off to the Wartburg Castle, an out-of-the-way corner of Saxony, and hid him there. And, and there was a manhunt? Uh, there was a manhunt. No one knew where he was. Lots of people thought that he had died, uh, been killed on the road. Um, but in fact, he was alive. And he used his time in the Wartburg to start on one of the great projects of his life, uh, translating the Bible into the language of the common people. For Luther, that was German. Uh, he translated it out of the Greek and then later out of the Hebrew into German. He started publishing books again. And by a year and a half later, in 1522, Luther was able to return to Wittenberg because it had become clear by that point that people and princes and cities across Germany were willing to stand up for what Luther was teaching, right? to defy the Edict of Worms, which condemned not only Luther, but anyone who protected him or kept his books. Right? So at that point, it, it had become a movement. And it was popular, popular enough so he was protected by the movement. That's right. Um, so not only the princes, but ordinary people. And again, the key to that is that Luther was really the first master of social media, so to speak. Right? Um, Luther really made the printing press profitable for the first time. Right? With Luther, there was this explosion in the amount of printed material, right? a 40-fold increase from 1517 to the mid-1520s. And a third of that 
was being written by Luther. Right? Luther was a master of using the printing press, the new technology, uh, of using the vernacular language, not just the Latin of the universities, in order to get his message across and printed and reprinted. Um, by the 1540s, it's estimated that there was about one pamphlet by Luther that had been printed for every man, woman, and child in Germany. Right? So just this tremendous outpouring like a modern social media campaign. If Luther had had Twitter, he would have used it and he would have been good at it. Is it difficult to find one of those printed Luther documents these days? Are they in most museums around? Um, because there were so many of them, they're pretty easy to find. The, actually, the Boston Public Library has a quite good collection of early Luther prints. Um, printed on the answer. Gutenberg Press? Well, on the successors of the Gutenberg okay. Press, right? The, in the that first century, century and a half of the printing press. So, this, the same situation with the church really exists today with the Catholic Church. They still stand as a turnstile that you need to put a coin in or you need to pay homage to, to get to heaven, correct? Or you can choose the other way, the Luther way, and have a direct relationship with God. Well, Luther certainly believed that God was accessible to everyone, and that the Bible was accessible to everyone, that it ought to be in everyone's language so that they could read it for themselves. And Luther's example, right, standing there at Worms and taking his stand based on conscience, was a tremendous example. Right? Um, it had long-range political consequences. That wasn't what Luther was thinking at the time, but the model of the role of the individual and the right of conscience to stand up to institutions, both the church and the state, uh, is a tremendous part of Luther's legacy and significance. If Luther hadn't stood there at Worms, the modern world, in many ways, would not exist. Is there one, and I have about 30 seconds, is there one book to read? Of course there is. If there, if there were one, what would it be? For, for a guy, a common person, not an academic, not an academic. So uh, Andrew Pedigree, a Scotch scholar of Luther, has a book, Brand Luther, um, published uh, about three years ago. And it goes into really interesting detail in a popular way about Luther, the printing press, and his ideas and his influence. Excellent. I can't thank you enough for uh, a great job, exactly what I was hoping for. Thank you so much, Christopher Boyd Brown, Associate Professor of Church History at Boston University. School of Theology for making uh, Jay Talk and a little cooler. Thank you very much. Thank you. There you go. Another episode of the Jay Talking Podcast. Remember, you can always catch the show live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to five on WBZ, Boston's news radio. You can subscribe to the podcast where you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. And follow me on Twitter for show updates. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.